Medic 43, District 1, Engine 51, Response, Cardiac Arrest. Hello, everybody. Welcome again to another edition of the MCHD Paramedic Podcast. We're on a streak here with COVID-19 material, so let's keep keep it running. Today, we're going to branch off from the clinical approach to taking care of COVID-19 patients, and we're going to get into a little more operational discussion and talk about the MCHD PPE experience. There's been chatter nationwide about how to best protect our paramedics and pre-hospital providers from COVID-19 exposure, what's needed, gowns, gloves, eyewear, face shields, masks, surgical, N95, respirators, pappers, booties, head coverings. It's been really a daily discussion here at MCHD since the onset of the pandemic and the word pandemic was uttered. So what we wanted to do was get a couple of folks here with our DICO at MCHD, our quality coordinator, Kevin Crocker, and our safety coordinator, Sean Simmons, to talk with the listeners about what we've learned over the past six to seven weeks here at MCHD, dealing with and talking through and managing our PPE use and PPE effectiveness, trying to keep our paramedics safe here in our service. So Let's start with one of our biggest lessons from my standpoint that we've learned here at MCHD, and that's the difference between an encounter and an exposure. And Sean, explain the meaning of those two things to our listeners and why that's been so vital for us here at MCHD in keeping our paramedics safe. I mean, you, you talk about lessons learned throughout this, and that's, that's where this really comes down to is this entire thing. I mean, we feel like we all have minors in epidemiology now, right? So we, we go back to one of the biggest lessons we've learned, and this goes way back to the very beginning when we first started seeing these suspected COVID patients, and that's what is an encounter, what is an exposure. So we're looking at exposures as people or crew members that have responded to a COVID patient and they had some kind of lapse in their PPE, whether it be their mask fell off, their mask ripped, their gown fell off, uh, any any kind of lapse or absence of, maybe they just forgot to put it on, which is what we found out at the very beginning is that crews were just forgetting or not wearing their mask because we didn't require it. We said, if you think there's a COVID patient, put on your mask. If not, continue on. That was a quick lesson learned for us. We, we noticed that we had a lot of exposures coming out of that. And then where we can turn those exposures into encounters is that if you encounter an, a COVID patient, you are protected. There's no concern of spread from the patient to you because you're fully protected with your PPE. Now, looking at that as well, we had those different levels of the PPE. So kick it over to Kevin. What are the different levels of PPE? And then I want to come back to encounter versus exposure after we talk about the different levels of PPE that we have to consider. So how have we progressed through that over the past six to seven weeks? And then we'll bring it back around to circle back to question one. So we're in a new norm, which is a term that we've all kind of tossed around lately. And I don't know how long the new norm stays before it becomes the norm where we go back to regular business. But you know, going into this, obviously you had, the, you know, we did eyewear and gloves on every call. Um, so that was kind of the standard PPE and that's standard PPE for, for most healthcare providers in the pre-hospital environment today. Uh, we, we knew going into this, we had a new norm because we had to reduce exposure risk. So uh, today we have two different levels of PPE. So our first is our standard PPE, 
which still includes your eyewear and your gloves. So we've increased that to include uh, eyewear, uh, gloves, and N95 mask on every call. Which is basically like our new universal precautions. That is our new universal precautions in this pandemic world that we live in. Uh, and then we have something called increased um, PPE. And we use that in a couple of different ways. And we'll circle back to this in the encounter versus exposure because I wanted to follow up on something Sean said. Uh, we have gown, uh, gowns that we use too. So gowns are used to, to cover your arms and your clothing and kind of reduce exposure to your uh, extremities and to your, your clothes that you're wearing. Uh, and we use PPE alerts um, and evaluation ahead of time to try to identify those potentially at-risk patients that would need the increased PPE levels. Um, Sean, do you want to talk a little bit about the screening tool? And we have two different screening tool processes. So we have the, the alarm screening tool process through our 911 call center. And then we have the provider screening process. Sean, do you want to talk about those two processes and how, how that works as far as PPE decision-making? Yeah, absolutely. So let's talk about when the 911 call comes in. We have, we have a group of uh, professionals in our call-taking center that uh, are absolutely amazing. They, they catch most of these calls. They're, they're doing a great job. They, the 911 call comes, call comes in. They go down the, the suspected list or chief complaints. And then they also go off into have you had any of these symptoms? And it goes, we, we start out with fever, uh, chills, any other flu-like symptoms, and uh, any kind of uh, respiratory symptoms, ch- uh, cough, uh, things along that line. And then we, we broadened it up even a little bit more, saying, do they have any uh, kind of atypical symptoms? Are they having worsened malaise? Are they having worsened weakness? Are they having the GI distress? Have they been in the hospital recently? All important questions. Not necessarily one thing that you should lock down for your clinical assessment, but different clues so you can make that decision of this is probably a suspected COVID patient, or I don't think it is so much. And we have that same screening process for the crews. So whenever whenever they show up on a call, regardless of what that initial screen is, they take a 10-foot assessment. Before they approach the patient, before they get into kind of that, that hot exposure zone, they, they ask those same questions again. Have you had a fever? Have you had a cough? Have you been to the hospital? Are you sick? How are you feeling? What are your complaints? So, it, so it's almost redundant, right? In, in that alarm dispatch is going down that list. They add that to the CAD on the call so that the medics see that going in. Patient had cough, PPE alert, so they know gown, gloves, eye protection, N95 mask on that call, and they're prepared when they walk up to the door. If that screen's no from alarm dispatch and it's an ankle pain, we're still not sending fire and EMS to the door in a group of five to walk in. We're sending one paramedic to the door to keep 10-foot distance, running down that same list of potential viral symptoms again, cough, fever, malaise, GI, whatever it is today. It seems like we add a new COVID nineteen symptom uh, about weekly these days. Nausea. Yes, yeah. if it can smell. Um, but in all seriousness, the medic is single medic is keeping that ten foot distance, asking those questions again. So we developed redundancy in our protocols. And if they get a second round of nose, then they use what is now standard PPE, like Kevin said. Yeah. I wear gloves. Always has been with the addition of an N ninety five mask. They don't don gowns at that point if they get a yes on the screen that potentially alarm dispatch missed then they're donning gown and alerting the medic in the truck 
if needed, depending on how many medics need to go. And that's another change that we've made that's been, uh, I think, fairly substantial to increasing our paramedic safety. Is, is That's something we've taken for granted over the years is the ability just to send whoever we want into the house or into the apartment or into the, the trailer or the mobile home or wherever it is we're going. Now we're being very, very particular about how many people we send in at once and only sending the minimum needed. And that may be slowing things down in some sense, but we're accepting that that slowdown for increased medic safety. Correct, Kevin? Absolutely. And that's been a big shift for us because, you know, we have our, our 300 employees that, that we're responsible for that respond to the ambulance every day. But in addition to that, we have a thousand firefighters and we have law enforcement agencies that respond with us. And uh, it's our job to kind of look out for those guys as well. So these changes that we've incorporated here internally for MCHD have also uh, gone for our firefighters as well. So we've been in constant communication with all of our uh, FRO agencies about these changes. Um, the PPE alerts that we've, uh, we've kind of developed through our dispatch center, um, they get those same notifications on their MDCs or their, their computers and their trucks warning them that's a PPE alert. They get that verbal notification from the alarm dispatcher saying that this is potentially a high-risk uh, COVID patient. And for the most part, we're having our fire departments stage on that. So they're not even, they're not going to be the first ones to go in. They'll respond to a close location and stage at a safe distance and let us send our one paramedic in first to evaluate the patient to see if they need additional hands. So if, if the patient's in cardiac arrest and is stuck in a bathroom, then we're going to need both medics to run the arrest. We're likely going to need our fire partners for lift assist. So we're doing that in a staggered Absolutely. evolution so that we only take the needed number of bodies in to minimize exposure risks, which in the end has worked out really well for us. And just for the listeners out there who aren't MCHD familiar, we are third service uh, EMS uh, with multiple uh, fire services underneath our umbrella that provide first responder uh, services for the EMS uh, here in the county. So we operate separately but in tandem so we are able to work together and again share those alerts and try to minimize ppe use try to minimize exposure and we've even expanded to try to uh, expand these alerts to law enforcement as well within the county to try to minimize their exposure as well so taking that back to encounter versus exposure the whole benefit that we've experience based on saying okay your standard now is not just gloves and eyewear it's gloves eyewear and a mask is we're considering walking in on a patient with a cough with eyewear gloves mask cough screen them in so we've got a gallon on two if we're appropriately ppe'd we're calling that an encounter not an exposure because we had an n95 mask on and that is again a service decision that we've made I'm sure one could argue, could you be infected with COVID-19 while properly PPE'd? And I'm, the stickler answer is yes, but there's great data out there from or the original SARS uh, specifically that shows that when we're properly PPE'd, the hospital worker transmission risk, the healthcare worker transmission risk is markedly low. So from that standpoint, we feel like that's as much protection as our paramedics can get. And that coupled with, and this, I'll kick this one over to Sean, tell the listeners a little bit about how we're screening our paramedics and how that we've coupled that with our PPE to say, okay, these are just encounters. 
Now, maybe you were exposed, but we're calling them encounters. How are we also kind of doubling up and creating redundancy there with screening our medics every day in and out of the station? Yeah, so... Or Kevin, sorry. Yeah, no, that's, that's fine. That's been a, a huge initi- an initiative for us that we started um, several weeks in, um, and it kind of came with a some CDC guidance and some regional planning and talking with our hospital partners. So uh, it's important that we are we are screening our employees because they do have encounters. Uh, it is also community spread at this point. So whether they get it at work or the, they're at the grocery store and, you know, potentially have an exposure there, um, it's important that we are keeping an eye on our employees' uh, health So before they even come into work. So uh, one thing we've learned, I think a lesson we've learned through the process, especially later in the game here, is that uh, some of our exposures have not been patient exposures. They've been exposures to coworkers who come to work who are sick. So that's really kind of prompted us to do the the screening ahead of time. So what we do today is we have a form they fill out uh, every day they come into work. So when they come into work, they're not allowed to enter the station because uh, we don't want to expose the station or the off-going crews. So uh, typically they'll, they'll meet the off-going crew at the bay uh, and they'll do a handoff exchange outside. Uh, they'll fill out the form and the form is uh, two simple questions. The first is, are you symptomatic? Do you have a cough? Do you have respiratory problems? Yes or no. And then we do a temperature screen as well. Um, so if their temperature is greater than 104, that uh, sends an alert notification to the DICO on call. So it's my, myself or Sean. Or if they have a call for respiratory symptoms, we also get a flag. And we'll, we'll call those employees and check up and see how they're feeling and make some decisions as far as whether they can stay at work or not. Uh, if they do have any kind of respiratory symptoms or cough, uh, and we decide they are going to stay at work, we put a surgical mask on them. Um, just to make sure we're reducing any kind of exposure risk from them coughing around the station. Uh, and that's kind of what we've, we've landed here at MCHD. And it's been a good process for us so far. Uh, we have a lot of different hospitals in our area, and they all have their own screening process internally. Uh, so it's kind of important for us that we have communicated with our hospitals because some of our hospitals initially wanted to screen our paramedics at the door. So as we're bringing a patient in, they didn't want us to enter the hospital without screening our paramedics. And it seemed kind of cumbersome for our employees to be screened here and screened every time they enter a hospital. So we've been in constant communication with all of our hospital partners. Uh, we actually meet with them twice weekly via Zoom meetings, uh, appropriate social distancing. Uh, just so, so we're having that good relationship building. They know that we're screening our employees. They know that our, you know, we're doing a good job to make sure our employees aren't symptomatic or at risk of spreading the disease. Uh, so they feel more comfortable with our, our employees being able to enter their facilities. And on multiple uh, phone calls with EMS directors across Texas. That's been an issue that's been brought up uh, across the state, which is not unreasonable. The hospitals want to make sure that folks that are walking through their doors aren't spreading COVID to their patients and their and their healthcare workers. But like you said, Kevin, it's cumbersome to yeah. to have our paramedics have their temperature taken. 28 times during a shift it just it, at some point it becomes a bit uh, ridiculous just and real quick just to uh, uh clarify for the listeners 100.4 not 104 100 we have a very high threshold here <laughs> no, so i mean we're not, <laughs> we're not looking at malignant hyperthermia and neuroleptic uh, malignant syndrome here we're talking about 100.4 good catch and that number is not at all based in any real data. That's the number that we picked. There's been lots of discussion about, is it 100.0? Is it 99.9? We went with 100.4 just because it seems to be a relatively standard number in 
in fever literature for no other reason than that. Yeah. And when we've talked to our hospital partners, they all have different numbers too. Some are a hundred, some are 100.4, some are 99.9. So there's no real consistent number that exists even in our small microcosm here in our, in our County. Um, but I want to circle back and say what you said is that, uh, I don't blame the hospitals for wanting to screen the paramedics as they enter the door. Cause I, they should be, they should be screening anybody that's coming into their hospital. I think for us, it was just important that we had that communication and trust with our hospital partners that, that we wouldn't allow a symptomatic sick employee to stay at work. And we've built that trust through years and then through constant communication through COVID, we've kind of, um, kept that bridge intact and, and kept that trust. And at this point they, they trust us and they know that we're doing a good job screening our employees ahead of time. And that's seven receiving emergency departments here in our County. We're checking our paramedics temperature twice a shift or twice every 12 hours. So that's what our standard has become. I'm sure there's slight variations that exist across the state and across the nation. Sean, I'm going to kick it back to you and I've, skipped around on my list here a little bit, but let's take it back to some other steps that we've taken at MCHD to minimize exposures, true exposures to COVID-19. Tell the listeners about a, a few more of those. Yeah. And I think what we can, what we consistently say at our table is that what curved this for us from having the exposures, the, the, the number of employees getting off and being put on isolation is that we did make the change that all employees wear that N95 on every single patient encounter because they are more typical encounters now. So we're looking at the these patients that come up with with the complaints of just not feeling right or feeling sick or whatever the off the off symptom is going to be, they still have that respiratory protection. And that's the big difference on the CDC guidelines is when we talk about the differences of high level exposure where you should mandate on active monitoring, put them on isolation is that high level exposure. And it's that physical barrier of a mask between you and the patient, having that patient wear a surgical mask, having the provider wear a, a filtered mask, you know, that, and that's where we, we really curved that as we, we saw those numbers increasing rapidly. So we pulled the trigger. We had the PPE supply at the time to say, okay, every encounter you're going to wear a mask. And that's really curved those high level exposures. That's been a game changer for us. I mean, since we've implemented the N95 mask, we haven't had a true exposure to a patient uh, since we turned that on. Uh, probably three weeks ago. Right. And this is, I mean, it took us hours of discussion to get there. I mean, this PPE discussion, even though we're six, seven weeks into this, it still occurs. We had a long discussion yesterday afternoon um, about appropriate PPE and when you should, you know, change out of your uniform and get into uh, you know, a different, different outfit. Like that's an ongoing process. And uh, to Sean's point, I think the N95 has been the, the big game changer for us. And I would just like to say we're, we're lucky in that our, uh, shout out to our materials management folks have been just game changers as far as keeping our stock and our supplies where they need to be to protect our paramedics and, and keep, you know, keep our uh, EMS folks safe. And that has been constant discussions every day, ordering, sourcing, looking at other off the beaten path sources and really tracking this from a data centric standpoint and looking at how what's our burn rate and how much are we using every day and following that and projecting out into May into June looking at do we ha how far can we get with our current supply when's our next order coming in um, you know as the clinical guy sitting at the you know incident command table this is stuff that realistically as an emergency physician I, I rarely have thought about over my career if at all and so seeing the planning and the level of you know, foresight that's gone into making these decisions has been 
phenomenal, phenomenally impressive to me. So I've, uh, I've, I've definitely learned a lot from watching how, uh, you, you two both have managed it in conjunction with a lot of behind the scenes folks here at MCHD who really deserve, uh, you know, huge kudos. A couple other things that we've done to minimize exposures from a clinical standpoint that I've noticed is, is requiring PPE for full PPE. And again, this is not old PPE. This is gown, gloves, eyewear, N95 mask for CPR, for all CPR, right? Because we can't talk to those folks. So we don't know whether they're in respiratory arrest, cardiopulmonary arrest from COVID-19 that they've been sitting at home on. So we've, we've, we've made that decision and up the ante there. And that's been a real safety game changer from my standpoint, because those really are some of the high risk exposure patients because they can't talk to us. So we just said, if they're in arrest, you're going to have to gown and glove and eyewear and mask up a hundred percent. And that's, uh, as, as a medical director made me feel quite a bit safer from that standpoint. Let's, uh, go into the crystal ball and, and we, Kevin's got a question. I, I want to follow up on that. A couple of other things we've done is we've tried to reduce aerosol generating procedures in general, right? So we've looked at, you know, not nebulizing the medication in the back of the truck. So, um, moving to MDIs with a, um, extender on it. We've looked at, if you're going to use a non breather, you have to put a surgical mask over it. Or if you're going to use high flow oxygen on a nasal cannula more than six, you put a mask over their face. Uh, if you're suctioning the airway, put a surgical mask over and try to keep it covered. Uh, so that way you're reducing that, that risk of creating an aerosol generating procedure. I think those are things that we've also done to kind of prevent or reduce the exposure rate to our crews. Yeah. And that's, we've, we've had the last couple podcasts have been airway related. So, uh, probably was remiss in not mentioning minimizing those those AGPs today. I feel like you guys are girls out there listening are probably airway COVIDed out, but that is a very good point to it's bring a up. Huge tie in for for the exposure risk, absolutely. And realistically, you know, the other thing just to stress that we may not have been clear enough is that we are putting, you know, a surgical mask on all the patients that screen in. So if you've got cough, malaise, fever, chills, you know, you name it and you screen COVID positive or the paramedics have, you know, a gut feeling that it's, it's necessary. We're, we're not uh, being conservative with putting surgical masks on patients. And again, that's to prevent them from spraying the droplet all over the back of the truck in the air that lands on the, you know, the bench where we're going to sit and run our hand through it and then rub our nose or our mouth in five minutes. And then we're COVID exposed. So having the surgical mask on the patient and the N95 mask on us has, has really been an excellent addition. So let's go to the crystal ball, the, uh, the wish list, Santa's list of PPE. If either or both of you could have one additional PPE wish, what would that be? Uh, mine's probably a little more broad than, than Sean's might be, and it kind of ties in exactly what you just said there is that uh, even though we try to reduce some of that exposure in some of the AGPs and reduce some of the virus spread in the back of the truck. You're still having some of that spread in the back of the truck. Uh, if patients cough, it projects it projectiles it and makes it aerosolized potentially. And it's in all the nooks and crannies in the back of the truck. So we do BioQuil, which is a hydrogen peroxide cleaning solution. Our ambulances, if they have a, a high risk exposure in the back of the truck, not necessarily to the provider, but if we have one of those aerosol generating procedures or we intubate in the back of the truck, um, we do BioQuil them to, to clean it out. Um, I hope that we have enough of that to, to last for the next two years of our lives. Like, I don't know how long this COVID new norm goes for us, but uh, even if it dies off in the summer and comes back in the fall, is it here in the spring of next year? Like, 
I, I do worry about the bioquil supply. I wish we had more of it. Um, I would like to put all of our trucks on a rotation where we could clean them at least once a week with bioquil. So that way they're getting, you know, we know they're getting routine decontamination with the hydrogen peroxide. Um, we do have a good supply of N95s today, uh, but there's some literature out there about people cleaning N95s with hydrogen peroxide bioquil type solutions. And it's something we've looked at here and we've actually tested it and we know it works. Um, so we're not, we're not doing that yet. We're not, we're not cleaning them and putting them back out and recycling them at this point, but at some point we might have to depending on how long this goes and how the supply chain holds up for N95. So uh, for me, it's, you know, making sure that we have a good supply of bioquil to make sure we're de decontaminating uh, and taking care of our trucks, taking care of our employees. Sean, if you had a, a wish list item, what would, what would your wish list item be? So my wish list is long. I have tons of things that I wish that we could have in place, but I think if I'm taking my top one or two, and this is looking into my position and what, what, what my daily questions revolve around, and that is, what can I do to mitigate the risk to make sure that we don't have sick employees, that we're not getting people sick while they're at work? And we're giving them every chance to go home safe to their families as when they showed up. And it breaks it breaks easy down for me is that I want the high-level protection. I want PAPRs. I want Tyvex. I want reusable respirators that are fitted. I want that for every patient, every crew member, on every call, every firefighter, every law enforcement. It's not it's not real. It's not going to happen. You know, we, we, don't have, we don't have the ability to do that. But when I'm looking at risk mitigation, I want to go all the way out and say, I want these steps put in place so that we don't have these patients that are one-offs that, that slip through our cracks. And I remember week one, when this first came out, I was researching into what they were doing in China, what they were doing uh, in Egypt and, and in Italy, saying, oh, we need to, we need to order Tyvex right now. We need, to, we need to get all of these suits that we can right now and we played with it, and then logistically, it, w it just wasn't a possibility to outfit our entire field crews and, and Tyvex and work on the maintenance and logistics of all that. It wasn't possible. But like I said, if we're, if we're looking at a perfect world where, where we can have whatever we want, that's, that's mine. I, I, want, I want top level. Well, and I'll kick back, though, because I've been peripherally involved in these conversations. And again, as a medical director, I have minimal expertise, if any, in this. But I will say that your insistence upon... The max, I'll sum it up as the max for our paramedics and for our patients here in the community, has directly led to discussions about, okay, we're running out of disposable gowns. How can we make this long term and last into June to September to February of 2021? And that's led directly to our reusable gown solution. And just for the listeners out there, we have sourced, uh, you know, awesome reusable gowns from a local, um, you know, a local company that supplied us with white gowns with ties that are fabric and, you know, water repellent and absorbent that we tie and use as you would a, a protective gown. And we've set up a rotation and washing system at our stations and in the trucks so that those rotate through and get bleached in hot water after use. And we have enough of those to keep a constant rotation with all of our 911 trucks. And so, no, you didn't get Tyvek because it wasn't realistic. But the solution that we did get because of your persistence and insistence was top of the line And from my standpoint. Not only is it top of the line, though, it's reproducible into the future. And now we're on to masks. And, yes, we all like to have Pappers, but we, you know, that, that was X'd pretty quick for you. But we're now looking at, RZ solutions with potential, you know, 
P100 capabilities, which are going to be a step up from N95s that can be worn on every call. Um, so we end up in a spot where this is reproducible and more long-term than always going with something that's disposable because disposable is 100% reliant on the supply chain, which we know is in terrible shape because of both China's situation and our situation. So, and I, I'm going to hit on the kind of echoing what you said is that the solutions we're looking for now are the solutions that we're going to have in six months, in a year, in in a, next year, and going forward. They'll they'll likely change as things do. But this, what we're looking for now, is things that can solve our immediate issues, but be future. Uh, solutions as well so we're looking straight across it, it's funny sitting here because we've been doing this for so long now that you kind of forget those game changing moments and i almost forgot completely about the reusable gowns like that was another huge game changer for us when you look at the supply chain gowns was a big concern of ours so having the reusables was a a, a huge shift for us and a, a huge game changer so appreciate sean pounding the table for that uh before we move on to the next question i want to i want to turn the table a little bit and ask you a question dr patrick talking about wish list items so when you watch the news and you're you, you, um, trying to keep up with uh, what, what the country needs, you hear a lot about testing. Um, there's not enough tests available to, to test the symptomatic, asymptomatic folks. So I wanted to get your thoughts on testing, surveillance testing of asymptomatic employees. Should you do it? Is it a good idea? Uh, what risk do you run? What benefits are there? So I'll, I'll toss it to you and let you. Boy, I wish I, wish I had a, a good answer for this one. And I've started to for my own opinion in relation to most things COVID-19, and that is when someone's very sure of their answer with anything in this disease and this pandemic, I become more doubtful of them. Uh, because if there's anything this thing's shown us, it's that we don't really know for sure what we're talking about and dealing with. Six months old, max. If you listen back to our January podcast on COVID-19, which at the time was the uh, novel coronavirus, 80% of that now is bunk, right? It's garbage because we were wrong. And we ended that episode with the caveat, we'll be back and change up on this if things change. And boy, have they ever. So from a testing standpoint, realistically, you know, I'm worried that we don't really have a gold standard. Uh, you know, we're using PCR as a gold standard and it's detecting viral RNA fragments that are specific to uh, COVID-19 or SARS-2. Um, but that's, you know, test collection dependent. That's going to be, um, you know, a reflection of just the viral RNA fragments being present. We've seen reports from South Korea over the last week or so that maybe there's quote unquote reactivation of the virus, or maybe there's just viral particles that persist when the patient isn't symptomatic anymore. We don't really know. Then you have the addition of the IgM IgG serology test, which I am no lab pathologist and I don't claim to be, but the basic idea is that IgM is our acute immune antibody response with IgG being more memory um, immunity, which happens later in the disease course as you're resolving or resolved so that you could theoretically test a patient and say, are they actively infected or have they been exposed and do they have immunity? And that's a standard test that happens. For instance, I'm uh, applying for hospital credentialing right now, and I never had a varicella or chickenpox shot because it didn't exist when I was little. I just got chickenpox. So I have a titer at home which shows IgG for varicella, which means 
I've been infected. So we've extrapolated this knowledge we have from other viruses to COVID-19 and saying, okay, well, let's just test the community and see who comes up IgG positive and we can say, oh, you're, you're immune. Well, maybe. Is that IgG response immunity or is it just the antibody floating around in your serum? We don't, we don't know how long it lasts. For instance, measles, you get measles once, you're immune for the rest of your life. We know that because we've studied it. The virus has been around for, you know, hundreds of years. COVID-19 has been here since, you know, late 2019. So we don't know what these IgM, IgG results really mean long term. We don't know how long this immunity lasts, if at all. We don't know if the virus reactivates or not, which I don't even want to get involved with discussing because that one scares me. I hope that's just something that, that's a testing phenomenon and not an actual reactivation. You know, we know that the best, you know, PCR swabs right now are in the 80% sensitivity range. So what do you do with a patient who's staring at you with fever, cough, chills, aches, all the COVID screen positive, you PCR them and it's negative, right? You still have to fall back on some clinical acumen there. So I've answered your question 0% at this point. Um, ideally, what we would want is a test that says you have it now active is answer possible one. Possible two is you don't have it now, but you had it and you're immune. And answer three would be you've not had it and you're an exposure risk. Right. And you have only three, three slots there that were possible. But the reality of that test existing now is 100% not the case. Yeah. And the reality of that test ever existing, I would say at best is very doubtful. Right. So we're going to have to take these tests in combination with patients, clinical presentation in the clinical course and really use our best judgment and be as careful as we can be. And if we have any doubt that the patient could be potentially infected or shedding, then that patient's got to be quarantined and isolated and kept away from, from the other EMS crews, right? We've got to play better safe than sorry. And that's, you know, the three of us at this table have had multiple discussions about employees on and off this past six weeks. And every time at the end of the discussion, somebody says, well, let's be safe, right? There's no reason to be cavalier here. Yeah. Now, that being said, we're lucky we've got a supply of N95 masks and we've got reusable gowns. There's a lot of smaller services out there, services with, you know, uh, financially strapped that may not have the resources that we have. You know, how do you keep your paramedics and your pre-hospital providers on the street if everybody's in exposure? So at some point, those decisions can become really, really dicey. You know, you take everyone off out of service and then, then who responds? And then what happens to the public? So these are these are questions that are really, really tough to answer. What I feel like my job is in this is to continuously and constantly look at the literature that's coming out. These preprint servers have, you know, they're ringing off the hook with, you know, manuscripts that are preprint. In other words, pre-peer reviewed with information about aerosolization, information about testing, information about mortality rate when patients are on the vent. And, you know, Dr. Dixon and I are doing our best to comb those and try to look at what the experience in Seattle and Italy in New York, in Detroit, you know, across the America and across the world and try to learn from that and, and figure out the best way to combine these tests, both serology and PCR amplification and figure out how to keep our medics as safe as possible. But I don't really have a good answer beyond using them at best in combination 
And when you use them in combination, PCR and serology, not forgetting to include the patient's clinical course because we know that these tests aren't 100% sensitive and specific, even when used in combo. So the patient's clinical course has to be factored in because if it looks and smells like COVID, I don't know that I necessarily care what the tests say. I'm going to keep that medic off until they're fever-free and symptom-free for that you know 72-hour period that the CDC talks about. So that would be my long-winded answer for that. And speaking of long-winded, we're getting towards the end of our, our time period here at the MCHD Paramedic Podcast. I want to thank Kevin and Sean both for not only joining me today, but for their yeoman's work over the past six weeks, taking these exposure and encounter calls 24-7, all hours of the night, weekend, uh, weekday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, you name it, they're on the phone with our crews in the end trying to make them as safe as possible and keep them as healthy as possible. And I think that's to be applauded and admired. So thank you all both for joining me and for that. And we're both happy to do it. Like our, our job here is to make sure that we're being as safe as possible and keeping our crew's exposure risk down. And if we do have a potential exposure, we're happy to talk through that and make sure that we're taking care of our, our folks. Yeah, that's that's what comes out of that trade is that, you know, we may not, we're not on the ambulance right now. We're, we're up in a, in a building, in a room in air conditioning, but we're doing everything at that table to make sure that the people that are on the streets are on the front lines. They're as safe and as protected as possible. And I, and I would leave that for the listeners out there. If you take one thing out of this podcast, and that is communication is key and open lines of communication are key to getting through this. And we've had Kevin and Sean available 24-7 for our paramedics here at MCHD. We've had nightly Zoom calls with uh, incident command medical directors just for really updates, Q&A, clinical discussions, case review, you name it. We've we've done it on Zoom. And from my experience, that's been probably the most valuable half an hour, 45 minutes each day that I spend is getting to hear from the crews on the street what they're seeing, what the patients look like, you know, we've, we've made, I mean, I would say no less than 20 changes, probably 30, 40, 50 changes based on direct feedback from the medics. Good idea, totally logical, but in practice, this is what happens. And then we make a change. So that communication has to be open. It has to be constant. And it also has to be a two way street. You have to be willing to listen to the folks that are actually on the ground in the field doing the work, you can have the most logical solution to a problem ever, but if it's not practical, it's no good. And so I've seen you two uh, both multiple times during the course of this pandemic, get that phone call, nod a few times. Yeah, good point. Okay. And then come back to Dr. Dixon and I with a, Hey, we need to change this. This is what's happening in the real world. And like, yeah, okay, cool. So I would, I would urge everybody out there to keep those open lines of communication, make them a two-way street, listen to your, listen to your paramedics in the field. They're the ones doing the work and experiencing the PPE. Uh, I'd love to have a COVID podcast off, but this is what's in our face and this is what's most important. Thanks, Sean and Kevin, for joining me today. As always, if you have questions or concerns from the podcast and want to shoot us an email, podcast at mchd hyphen tx.org is the email leave us a like or a review where you listen to your podcast that helps make us visible and get us out there for more listeners to hear what we got to say as always thanks for joining us and we'll be back again soon 
with another episode. Have a good day. This podcast was brought to you by the Montgomery County Hospital District, Texas. Production and editing by Andrew Adams. Questions or comments, which are always welcome, can be sent to podcast at mchd-tx.org. Make sure to subscribe above to keep updated to all our future casts. Music, copyright, Kevin McLeod, Incompetech.com. Licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0.